The views and opinions expressed by hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the views of the Global Liberty Alliance, its network, sponsors, donors, or broadcast platforms. The Global Liberty Alliance provides this podcast for informational purposes. Freedom of speech is a fundamental right and essential for free societies to prosper. Thank you for listening and supporting the mission of the Global Liberty Alliance, dedicated to strengthening and defending fundamental individual rights, free markets, and the rule of law. And welcome to another Global Liberty Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Jason Poblet, coming to you again from Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from Washington, D.C. Uh, today we have our friend, uh, a fellow human rights warrior, uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. Uh, Bill uh, has been an activist for quite some time. In fact, we kind of share that background. He's been active since his teenage years uh, doing human rights work and labor work. Upon graduating from college, uh, he went to work as a welder in a shipyard. I'd like to hear a little bit about that and thereby uh, started working in the labor movement. Over the years, he has been active in workplace and community uh, struggles, including uh, political campaigns. He has also worked for several labor unions, in addition to serving as a senior uh, staffer for the national AFL-CIO. He's a uh, former president of Trans-Africa Forum, a senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies, and has published several different books, which we will uh, publish on the podcast. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Bill with us today is that we share something in common. Uh, even though we're from very different political backgrounds, uh, we, we share something in common. And uh, we've been advocating for a referendum and for the free people of the Western Sahara and Africa for many, many years. And we were brought together in one of the miracles of Washington, where you've had groups from different backgrounds, ideological, political interests, uh, come together for a common cause. Bill, how are you doing? Jason, I am doing really well, and I'm, I'm really excited about this program. I appreciate you inviting me. Well, th thank you for joining us. I know you're busy. We don't have a lot of time today, and we're probably going to have to do the uh, multiple features with you. But uh, this issue is so important. We both uh, met uh, because of it. Uh, but before mm -hmm. we talk about the Western Sahara, tell us a little bit about how you became a human rights activist, uh, a labor leader, really, and, uh, and what drew you eventually to this Western Sahara? Because we all come to it from very different backgrounds, but it's interesting for folks to understand uh, how you came uh, to be involved in this, because there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are trying to get more involved, and they'd like to know what folks have done in the past. Well, the short version is uh, my activism itself started when I was 13, uh, and I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And as I always tell people, it changed my life. Um, at the end of that, I realized that I needed to be a social justice activist. Hmm. And, uh, and then when I got into high school, I became active in high school, radical politics and college, the same. I had originally planned on becoming an attorney and with all due respects, uh, respected attorneys in the room, um, <laughs> I, I decided against that. Smart man. <laughs> <laughs> Some people would say smart man. I, I love practicing. But anyhow, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you know, I, I find the law fascinating, Jason, but I decided I wanted to get into the labor movement. Mm. And I wanted to do that 
not as a staff person in the beginning, but as a, as a worker. And I went to work as a welder in a shipyard um, and, and then did a number of other things. But all during this, I have been interested in international affairs, which actually goes back to when I was even younger than 13, uh, because my family, uh, my extended family, would regularly talk about world affairs. And sometime in the early 1970s, while I was in college, that's when I heard about the Western Sahara. Mm. And at that point, the struggle against uh, Spanish colonialism, and then ultimately against the Moroccan occupation. And uh, it grabbed me. That's, that's you know, interesting for those of us who came to it through other paths, but believe it or not, uh, for me, it was the end of the Cold War, right? And I had never, I had always heard about the conflict. And I was in Miami, growing up in Miami, you heard about these things because of the Spain connection and all that. And we knew about it. We knew about the conflict. It was always interesting. And right after the end of the Cold War, right in the early 19, mid-1990s, right at the very end with the Berlin Wall came down, Mm -hmm. uh, I said to myself, well, where am I going to go first? Am I going to go somewhere behind the Iron Curtain? I don't know. And someday this thing happened. I, I forgot now. I said, no, I'm going to go to Sahara. And I ended up visiting for the first time. And I was hooked. And I've been involved ever since. And um, it's a fascinating issue. Uh, before we jump into it, mm -hmm. though, what do you think brings together uh, folks from such different backgrounds? For those who don't know me, I'm a you know, very conservative Republican um, active in the human rights space for a long time also, but there's an interesting coalition of folks on the right, folks on the left that seem drawn to this thing. And frankly, it's the one thing that keeps this thing going in Washington, all these different stakeholders right. coming in here, including people in the Senate. Just a few weeks ago, early this year, you had this letter by Senator Jim Inhofe, a Republican from Oklahoma, with his friend Patrick Leahy, Democrat from Vermont, and 25 senators joining on board, urging President Biden, hey, there's a problem out here at the Sahara with what happened in the prior administration. You need to change this. So before we jump into details of all this, what, you know, for, for, for listeners who don't know what, how Washington works, how are these coalitions like? You've been at this a lot longer than I have, uh, not too much, but a little bit more. How do these groups come together? Because it happens more than people think. You know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, there's, they come together in a variety of different ways. Sometimes uh, these coalitions come together because of a very immediate issue and people are able to put aside their differences because of the gravity of that, of that particular issue. Hmm. The thing with the Western Sahara that's interesting, Jason, is that I don't know much about your politics, for example. I, I mean, I know that you're uh, conservative. Um, what, what I have found interesting is that the fact that I come from the left and I am unapologetically a leftist. Um, and the fact that you're conservative has been irrelevant mm. in this, uh, in our work around the Western Sahara. And part of that is, uh, and, and not just with you, but with other people who are more on the right that I've worked with in, around the Western Sahara, is the question of basic decency mm. and belief in human rights. 
and that we might disagree on a whole lot of other things. I'm not even going to ask you about Donald Trump, <laughs> um, for example, right? I voted but, for him, but what can I say? You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to ask. That's no problem. That's well, no problem. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. But, but I, I don't, I think in the context in, with, in which we work, it, that has not gotten in the way. Mm-hmm. And that no. there's, we have been able to build a relationship based on mutual respect. And that's different from some of the cynical alliances that take place that are sometimes necessary, but where people actually hate each other, but feel like even if I hate them, I have to work with them. <laughs> In our case, that's not how I feel. I feel like we came together like streams down a hill. Mm that converged and formed a river. And, uh, and, and so we had different points of origin, but we ended up coming together. And um, it, it, frankly, it's been a pleasure working with you and working with a number of other people with, that I would never work with and may never again on other issues, but not because of any kind of personal antipathy. And that's the distinction that I think is very important for your listeners to get. And I think that's important, Bill, for even many other issues. I think a lot of times we get caught up with what folks see in, I guess, cable news, which I don't watch, believe it or not. Uh, I, I do a lot more reading and selective engagement of what I watch on video. And even what you read in, in newspapers, I don't know what they call them today, but whether they're, it's the Post, the Times, uh, the Epoch Times, you name it. Um, I think folks just need to read a lot and get their news yes. from various sources, uh, challenge respectfully your colleagues where you disagree with them and be able to be, build around consensus. You know, one of the things I learned from my days as a street political guy from the time I was on the Hill and then in the private sector engaging in some of these issues is that if you, you got to build a lot of times if you don't have the votes, you can't move product, for example, in Congress, you just can't do it. Uh, but it's not just about passing things. And I think the Sahara issue is a good, uh, a good example of what happens when you are driven by the issues of human rights. Human rights are not Republican, they're not Democrat, they're not liberal, they're not conservative. We're talking about our fellow human beings and treating them well. And the people in the Sahara, the Saharawi people, we have a commitment to them. We've had one for decades, it predates me, uh, to help ensure that the Moroccans, frankly, live up to their expectations and see the referendum through they deserve the right to freely choose their own destiny. Uh, and they, 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 the US has always been on the side of that. And um, I think all these different members that come together in the House and Senate and out here, we have stakeholders advocating for human rights and issues such as these. Uh, there's a, a, a good lesson to be learned uh, that you can't be, and, and this is not, it's a reflection of Washington and people say it's, it's a cynical place and it's a corrupt place and bad things happen. Yeah, it's all that, but you know, the world's not, the world's a rough place. It is. And, and, and it's, you know, you, that's not going to change. Uh, you just got to work together as people and treat each other with respect. And you can move product, which is what my, my former boss on the Hill, Bill Thomas from California, used to say. On Sahara, uh, yes, I did vote for President Trump. Uh, I'm a Republican, so I'm, I, I tend to be a party person. We're not going to talk politics today. But on this issue, I disagree with him. A hundred percent, and I I think he was poorly advised. I'm not. I'm still quite not sure, Bill, uh, how that agreement came together. Uh, we we put together a law comment that we published on the website. We're going to share it with some other folks 
Um, I think there was a lot that we still need to unmask, if you will. And I think Senator Inhofe and Senator Leahy are gonna do that. The Western Sahara conflict, for those who don't know, and we're gonna give you a very quick summary between <laughs> Bill and myself. Uh, mm -hmm. It dates back to the Cold War, even predates that. But for our purposes, we'll just talk in, in modern times. And in the late mid to late seventies, uh, Moroccans were a colonial power, excuse me, the Spanish were a colonial power. It was occupied by Spain until 75. Then there was a whole back and forth, a lot of disagreements. Morocco came in, started, broke their word. And now, like Bill says, has been unlawfully there for quite some time. Uh, the UN moved in, I think it was in, the ceasefire was in 91. That's right. And there's been a mission down there, the UN called Minurso, uh, that's supposed to have been working toward a referendum. Now, what's been going on, Bill, that all of a sudden this agreement shows out of nowhere, frankly, uh, even though some of us on the inside knew something was up, uh, but we're not quite sure why. And why hasn't, for those who don't know enough about this issue, why has that UN mission not been able to achieve what they committed to the, Polisar, the, the Sahrawi people when that, that mission was put together? Why don't these folks have a free Western Sahara yet? Okay, so um, a couple of additional background points to answer that. The, um, the way that international law works or is supposed to work is that a colony uh, in the process of decolonization is supposed to have the right of self-determination. Um, and that should have meant that in 1975, the people of the Western Sahara, and we're talking about a small number of people, a um, couple hundred thousand, uh, that they should have had the right to choose their political direction. The Moroccan government did not want that to happen. And in a scene that is reminiscent of that fam those famous pictures from the settlement of Oklahoma in the late 1800s when uh, uh, all of these white settlers were on the border of Oklahoma and then a bell rang and they started charging into Oklahoma to grab land. Um, that's sort of what happened in the Western Sahara in 75, that the king had that so-called Green March and sent all of these settlers in, in violation of international law, to take land. And uh, these were settlers with troops. And as a result, uh, a war went on until 91, as you pointed out. I, I think that uh, when we look at what happened uh, after 91, Jason, part of what brings you and me to the table is that uh, former Secretary of State James Baker, uh, who was Secretary of State under George H.W. Bush, was tapped by the United Nations to mediate the conflict. And in the late 90s, basically came up with an agreement that the liberation movement for the, the Sararis, Polisario, agreed to, and the Moroccans said that they were gonna to agree to, until, which was gonna involve a referendum at the end of 99, so that uh, the conflict should have been settled. But when the Moroccan royalty discovered that they'd probably lose the vote, they called the whole thing off and humiliated James Baker. Uh, who threw up his hands and just and walked away at that point, feeling that he had lost total respect for the Moroccan royalty, which was not interested 
in a, in a referendum unless they knew that they would win it. And so we've been going through this um, sort of cold war with a small C and a small W ever since, which then blew up in November when the Moroccans violated the agreement um, in, a, in a very dramatic way. The thing that, in, that uh, took place with uh, former President Trump, there are theories about this, but basically for the listeners to remind everybody, what Trump did after the November election, after he had lost the November election, he recognized the Moroccan claim over the Western Sahara, which was a violation of international law on his part. And it was also a violation of the precedent that the United States had been following since 91. Um, now, why did he do this? There's different theories. One theory is that he was uh, very angry with Senator Inhofe about another piece of legislation and decided to stick it to Inhofe because he knew that Inhofe was very concerned with the Western Sahara. The other theory is that it was also, it was part of what have been called the Abraham Accords, which have been these efforts to isolate the Palestinians by getting different Arab countries to sign uh, um, not peace agreements, because those countries weren't at war, but to normalize relations, and that this was another effort in that, and that in exchange for Morocco normalizing relations with Israel, that the uh, U.S. would back Morocco's claim to the Western Sahara. But Jason, the irony, as you probably know about the Morocco is that the relationships between Morocco and Israel didn't have to be normalized because no, no, dating no back to the 19, right? Not only is there no war, but dating back to the 1960s, yeah. Morocco and Israel have been collaborating on a whole set of projects, right. including right. intelligence operations. Right. So while they may not have had diplomatic relations, it was like, so what? They had a normal thing. So this was a really cynical move, which we're hoping that uh, President Biden will reverse. You know, I've, um, I've uh, thought long and hard about that, and I quite don't know still, and we've asked several former Trump administration officials about this, and it's, well, we may or may never know uh, what drove them to make that decision. Frankly, you know, I've seen some poorly crafted policy in Latin America that I believe he, his Latin America team at the time could have steered him another way or pop, put in front of him different option than they didn't. Um, and we'll see what comes of it. Uh, I, I do think that there, this was a mistake like James Baker said, I think he wrote a letter and he, they had made, he made a statement. He also wrote in an op-ed that he hopes that the Biden administration would rescind it. Yes. And in addition to that, John Bolton, who, as we all know, is, uh, you know, he's very conservative on, on national security oh, and yeah. national security issues. Nobody on the left likes him. Uh, but on you know politically, I'm just saying that term tongue in cheek. There's yeah, this, yeah. this agreement there about his the way he pursues foreign policy, but even he has says that, and he's written extensively about it uh, that the U.S. must reverse course on the Sahara. And there's an interesting piece that he wrote in Foreign Policy uh, that I commend to my friends, even friends of ours who support President Trump, to read it and put the Trump politics aside and just focus on the substance of this thing. Uh, this is a lot, it's, it may sound like a simple issue that Bill and I are talking about, it isn't. 
this has the potential to, if we don't address it soon, uh, there is a hot war going on down there. I wouldn't say it's a full out war, but the conflict's gone hot. It hadn't been that's hot. Right. It hadn't been hot in some time, and that's not where we want it to go. Uh, we're trying to bring folks, like Bill. Uh, Bill said. There's a long-standing policy of referendum. They have a right to, to do that. There was an agreement in place that was put together through the UN. And that's an interesting question for you before we talk a little bit more about Sahara. Mm -hmm. You think the UN Fourth Committee, this whole process, you know, the, the decolonization, the, the, the process that creates these international pathways, if you will. For those of us on the right, you know, we were very skeptical about anything that's not customary international law. So anything that's these new organizations that were put together after World War II, we have certain skepticism about them um, for a variety of reasons not relevant to the Sahara. But on this issue of the fourth committee and how it's handled this, I've been quite, frankly quite shocked at the UN's lack of injecting itself into this. They haven't really been forceful in saying enough of this. Do you think that's where the solution rests or do you think it has to be led by stakeholders such as the US and other powers in the region to help put this right back on a correct path? It's an interesting question, man. Um, see, I believe in the principle of international organizations because we're all on one planet and we have to figure out a way of collaborating on the basis of mutual respect. And, uh, but the problem is that many of these international institutions are, um, exist where there is a de facto or de jure veto that one or another power ends up having. And this ends up meaning that in effect that, that these international institutions are like the United Nations are frequently blocked from doing what they need to do. So like in a case of the Western Sahara, uh, the, the UN mission that you mentioned uh, earlier uh, does not have a human rights component to it, which is completely bizarre because yeah. normally that's something that would be expected. That's right. Uh, so they basically are there to monitor a ceasefire, but not there to deal with human rights issues. And that is in part the result of the impact or, or influence of different governments. Um, so ideally, this would be worked out through the UN and the African Union. Mm. Um, the, I think that the reality, though, is that civil society, you know, regular people need to put uh, pressure on our respective governments and on the Moroccan and French governments to actually do something that that uh, the, the Moroccans entered into the Western Sahara in 1975 with the clear knowledge and support of the United States. So we actually, as a people, have an obligation, as far as I'm concerned, to right a major wrong that was conducted uh, 40 years ago. And, uh, and so I think that one of the steps in that is to alter US policy was the Western Sahara. And uh, that begins with <clears throat> reversing uh, former President Trump's uh, declaration. But I think it's got to go further than that. And I'll tell you the truth, Jason, that the, as someone who was supportive of the idea of a referendum, 
and it seemed like it made the most sense. That's what Polisario agreed to. I feel like the horse is out of the barn now. And that what really, what needs to happen is that Morocco just simply needs to withdraw. They hmm. need to be forced out that, that they had an opportunity, which would have been a face-saving opportunity, even if they had lost the referendum. Uh, but they decided to ignore that. And uh, I don't think that they get two bites of the apple. You know, he, here's the irony of all this about the last few months. And I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I, I, don't, I don't like it when people say that this has been a frozen conflict. You, you hear that a lot in, these, right. in, in our circles. That's far from a frozen conflict. And I think the Moroccans, and for folks who don't know about Morocco, it still has a king. It's not really a democracy. Um, they spent millions of dollars lobbying Washington, D.C. with uh, who knows what money and where they're getting that money from, but spreading rumors about the Polisario and the Sahrawi and saying things. You know, when I came back from the camps from the first time, I was approached by somebody from the Moroccan embassy. They were trying to tell me that, I, I, they, I, you, know, they, you know, you were hanging out with terrorists and and people who are communists and this and that. And I, I just, I didn't know. I was a new kid here from Miami. I had no idea. In fact, I think that may have been my first interaction with an embassy here in Washington, which I found quite strange. Um, and the rhetoric hasn't changed. And they throw out this frozen conflict thing. But the Moroccans, that, that whatever they signed with the US last, uh, this year, last year, within the ink wasn't dry. And they were violating human rights already. They were they were attacking the Sahrawi people. Uh, they were they were using uh, uh, many unlawfully their police powers to lock up. Mm -hmm. We've been in contact with a group of of young student leaders who were beat up ruthlessly. It's as if they had a license when they once they had this deal uh, or whatever it is that they think they have. Uh, they went off and, like you said, not only did they they tried to eat the whole apple pretty quickly. And mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think it needs to be something has to happen beyond talking. And especially when we, they can't be, frankly, you can't trust them. And, and no, that's you, can't. The, you can't trust them. We had decades and decades of them breaking their word to our government. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, we as taxpayers should demand more from our government when we're out there projecting in the region, because this is not what we, even if you agreed with those agreements, whatever they were, um, I don't think legally they stand muster as part of the no, show. Exactly. That's for and, another and, show, but, but but to talk about the law, what do you think about that issue? You know, this thing is hot. They already started violating human rights, but then on your on your question of international law, mm -hmm. it's there's been a decision, and I, I agree with it since 1975 before the International Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. It states pretty clear that the information that Morocco provided in that case showed no tie of territorial sovereignty between the territory of the Sahara and the Kingdom of Morocco, and it was an unambiguous judgment. They lost it. They mm -hmm. don't have a lawful claim on the Sahara after decolonization. Mm -hmm. That's important. And it's a free, they're free people. They are allowed to make up their minds. They have rights to land. They have rights to vote. And they're being denied that right to vote by the Kingdom of Morocco, who, by the way, gets money and U.S. defense contracts. We taxpayers pay for this. Uh, what do you think has to happen? I mean, is, is it enough to be saying we're going to do something or do we have to do what you're saying we have to put Minerso in a different posture maybe what steps do you think need to come from the un but what should the u.s do beyond writing letters issuing tweets and saying we're working on it 
So there's what should the U.S. government do and what should the U.S. people do? Right. And and um, and I think you're you're hitting it all uh, correctly on the head. So I think that what uh, the U.S. people need to do. Well, let me let me back up. Let me first say why I think that we should be concerned because I'm sure there's somebody that's listening and saying, "Why the hell should I be concerned?" About that? <laughs> that's right. There probably right? are many. <laughs> and and I would say. At a minimum, it's this, that we're talking about the possibility, leaving the morality aside, the morality of national sovereignty. We're talking about the possibility of a major regional conflict in Northwest Africa that could ultimately join the United States. Why is that? Well, Morocco has made land claims for much of Northwest Africa since 1962. When Algeria became independent, Morocco invaded Algeria and claimed part of Algeria as their own. They claimed the Western Sahara, they claimed Northern Mali, and they claimed most of Mauritania. So there's been tension in the region for a very long time because of Moroccan uh, arrogance at the leadership level. Um, So now you have a a hot conflict. There is a a war that's uh, uh, restarted. And, and so Algeria is a major supporter of the Sahrawis. This is one of those situations where someone could make a mistake and Algeria and Morocco would be at war, right? But then let's add to that the uh, uh, two non-state actors, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb and Daesh, Daesh being ISIS, both of which have been operating in, in Northern Africa and along the Sahel and would love to stir things up. Now the Polisario, the liberation movement of the Sararis has clamped down and, and kept the Al-Qaeda and Daesh at bay, but this thing could actually explode and, and explode like Krakatoa. If that happens, then the United States will be inevitably drawn in. And so at a, at a completely pragmatic level, we should be concerned about resolving this conflict. So then what does that mean? Well, I think part of what it means is raising this issue with our elected representatives. Um, You know, I visited my congressman uh, two years ago and sat down with him. And truth be told, he knew very little about the Western Sahara. And we had to go soup to nuts and we had to dispel all kinds of myths that he he was uh, subject to. Um, So that's one of the things that we have to do. A second thing is that companies that do business with Morocco need to be penalized. And particularly if those companies are doing any business within the Western Sahara, which by the way is illegal because yes. since, yeah. since uh, uh, the Western Sahara exists as a occupied territory, um, international law says that companies should not be doing business there, but they are and, and there needs to be penalties. We need to be looking at who is providing loans to the Moroccan government and are they paying a price for that? So it's those levels of pressure become very, very important. Then what do we need the United States to do? Well, the first thing is what you and I have been talking about, Jason. They need to reverse uh, Donald Trump's giveaway. But we have to go beyond that. And, And I think that optimally what we want is for the United States to recognize the Sarari Arab Democratic Republic 
as an independent state. The Sarari Arab Democratic Republic is the government of the Sararis. It is recognized by the African Union mm-hmm. by approximately 80 countries around the world as a legitimate representative of the Sarari people. The United States should also join in, in recognizing them. The United States needs to be cutting off military aid to the, um, to the Moroccan government. And there also needs to be pressure on the French government because the French are the principal external uh, supporters of Morocco and Morocco's adventures. So I think those are the steps that, that need to be taken because I really do fear a regional conflict and what that could mean, not just for the United States, but for the rest of Africa. And as we, we're gonna be wrapping up soon because uh, we have, uh, Bill has to get going, but I, before he, he leaves us, I, I wanna unpack one or two items because he outlined there are a lot of options. And one of them, of course, is the recognition of the Polisario, something that probably should have happened a while ago at, at, a, at, a, at a more official level. And also contrast that, which is Morocco really fears this. And this is an old historical little footnote, but Morocco was the very first country in essence, they didn't exist at the time, it was called something else that the US mm-hmm. had diplomatic relations with. And they tried, Moroccans still live off that old historical nostalgia as somehow that gives them license to do bad things. Mm-hmm. And I think we as American taxpayers who sell them things, including weapons of war, which I don't mind selling and exporting defense articles as long as you do you use them for what you're supposed to use them for, for example, to keep the region more stable. Bill talked about a few of the problems there. But you're not supposed to use what we sell to you and leverage that diplomatic emotional relationship to go and commit gross violations of human rights. In some cases, crimes against humanity that can be documented and will be documented, by the way, because that's part of our mission, not only to help people who are you know, in, that, in, in a jam, but also to hold perpetrators to account with sanctions, with visa restrictions, mm-hmm. and if necessary, in, the, in courts of law, even though that moves slow, we have to do it. Uh, but Bill also talked about something uh, that I think all of us have to think about and reflect about and approach our members of Congress. It may seem like something very far away in West Africa, uh, North Africa, West North Africa, but it is and probably has the potential now more than ever, considering the economic state of the world, the pandemic and tensions in the regions that were there already, mm-hmm. uh, that it could become a bigger conflagration that can spill into other regions. And we don't need more instability in Africa. Africa has gone through plenty of wars, plenty Correct. of suffering. They don't need this. Uh, they need economic. They need economic development. They need support. And curiously, I had a friend in Israel who used to be in the foreign ministry a long time ago. I'd asked him about this issue, this agreement, and they, he was very blunt and says to me, "We don't need it. We don't want it. Your country asked for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's it's not something that we really were focused on." And Morocco, as you said, Bill, we've had a long relationship with the folks in Morocco for security reasons and economic reasons. It's not, it's, it's, the, it's the secret everybody knew about. Right. So why that happened, he says to me, you tell me, well, how did this happen? Because it's not something Israel wanted or needed. Yeah, we, we, we're okay with the Abraham Accords and we'll keep pressing for peace. Everybody wants peace. But, and this is the curious part, he says, I don't want that issue uh, creating problems for us here. It's not a priority for us. And that was, it was pretty telling that a former, yeah. a former Israeli foreign ministry person is telling me, 
It's not a priority for us. So where do we go from here as we wrap up? I hope you'll uh, come back, Bill, but where, where do we go from here? And people who are listening to this will want to get more involved. What do you recommend they do beyond reading uh, and, yeah. getting, and getting more active if they wanted to get more active? What do you think they should do? Well, we have started a, um, a, a national coalition in the United States to campaign to end the Moroccan occupation of the Western Sahara within the coming uh, weeks, we should have a website. Uh, but in the meantime, anyone interested in this can reach out to me directly, Jason. Uh, my website is billfletcherjr.com and that's B-I-L-L-F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R-J-R.com. Uh, and I'll get back to you, um, uh, you know, ASAP. Uh, so working with us and supporting the work of uh, of our coalition be very important. Um, sending, calling your congressional representatives. Frankly, if you do nothing more and just call and say, we need the United States to reverse Trump's giveaway. That's all you need to say. Really, those words, you know, and, and that would make an immense amount of difference. Uh, I'm optimistic, Jason. Mm. I really think that we can turn this around and that it's in part because it's a conflict that people felt was like, you know, uh, marginal, that this situation has been able to last as long as it is. And to borrow from something you were saying, I think that the Western Sahara points out that peace is not the absence of war. That's right. But I want to thank you very much for having me on the program. Well, Bill, thank you for, for joining us. I know we could have kept going, but we're both uh, real strapped for time today. But yes. we'll post a website link and we'll share it with the distribution. And we look forward to having you on again someday. I look forward to it, man. Thank you very, very much. Be All well. right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Hello, fellow Liberty Warriors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast. It's free uh, for starters. There's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are at any time. It's uh, distributed for you. So that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started.